So they, they buy and sell in giant blocks. And the energy grid is not a one-to-one connection like many people think of it. It's not like, you know, your house says, hey, I need, I need power to run the refrigerator. And then Amron's like, cool, we'll send you some. That's not the way that it works. All the like coal firing plants, all the solar panels, all the windmills, everywhere on the entire grid is just one big pool that gets energy put into it and energy removed from it. Welcome to a bit cryptic podcast where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now it's time to get a bit cryptic. Hey everyone, this is Dom, tech writer and co-host of Fit Cryptic. I am sitting here in St. Louis, Missouri. Today's program is about the future of energy. It's going to be about the way we produce energy and how we distribute it. The way that we produce and distribute energy has not fundamentally changed in decades. And many would not pick St. Louis City as a hub of tech innovations, nor would they think the utility or electricity a sector as early adopters of emerging technology. But we're here today to discuss innovations in both of those areas. I'm sitting with Joe Garner and Chris Mertens, the co-founders of Blossom. They're a St. Louis-based energy startup. They're going to tell us how they plan to take us to the future of energy, an energy future that's decentralized, it's digital and it involves a sharing and exchange of energy in, in a peer-to-peer marketplace. They're going to help us understand how a blockchain is going to be that, that catalyst. Blossom, their startup, was part of the Ameren Accelerator Program. Ameren is a large traditional utility company here in the Midwest, and they serve millions of customers in the natural gas and electricity market. So with that... Joe and Chris, welcome to our program. Thank you very much. Thank you very glad much. To be here. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. So you're both fairly young and relatively new on the tech scene. Mm-hmm. So tell the audience, how did you keep first get involved with tech startups and blockchain technology? Yeah, so we started working together in 2014 after, well, yeah, I think neither of us got internships that semester. And then we got an opportunity with my mom's boyfriend, actually. You're just like, hey, I need this fancy Excel script, right? I need this some fancy Excel work done. Could you guys help me out with that? And we're like, yeah, yeah, sure. And he was offering to pay us. So we wrote a Python script to like sort through a giant Excel file. And that was kind of like my first forte into computer science. Actually, I'm a mechanical engineer. But from there, it just kind of took off because the next year, the exact same thing happened. And neither of us got the internships that we wanted. So we were like, hey, let's work together again. Joe had this opportunity over at Tech Artista in the Central West End. And we worked with the owners there for the summer. Basically, uh, we had a disagreement about how yeah. the product, where the product should go. So, you know, we were very light interns, we'll, we'll call it, uh, there. And we decided to part ways and we kept our IP. There was, you know, it was a very a loose internship that we had going on there. So there wasn't any legal ramifications or anything. Yeah. So basically we developed our own, our own CRM software essentially is what it was. And what's the um, CRM software? Uh, CRM is a customer relationship, okay. customer relations management, I believe. Okay. So essentially it was a tool that involved an NFC card reader that we built off of a Raspberry Pi and our own code that was running behind it that would basically track via like 
NFC cards that you know you could get from any like participating restaurant, and this would replace your POS. I can actually show it to you. This is this is the housing for one of them. This is kind of yeah, there we go. So basically, it would just go in here, and I would just sit on your counter there, and it would you know blink, and you know you can scan it, and basically it would track your purchases, and it would relay that back to, and also your traffic. So it would relay that back to the businesses. And the idea was, hey, if there's like cross-promotional foot traffic here, so like a cluster of businesses like the Central West End or the Del Mar Loop or any strip mall or real mall ever, you know, we saw a lot of people going from, you know, one business to another with regularity. So like Joe, for example, would go from Smoothie King to Witch Witch on the Loop all the time, almost every day to get a smoothie and a sandwich for lunch. And we kind of thought about that. And I also thought about that. Like I have a like path when I go through the mall and I know that everyone else has these same types of paths too. So that was kind of where we were going is, Hey, this thing is going to alert you. If you guys have cross promotional foot traffic, it's going to tell you things that your customers want more from your business. And it's going to allow you to barter with other businesses to, you know, like take use of that information and try to do promotions because in this case, Smoothie King should definitely offer a coupon, say, Hey, if you come in with your witch witch receipt, we'll give you a free smoothie or we'll give you something, you know, like 10% off your smoothie or something like give some kind of a deal to get people in both places. Yeah. The whole idea was to sell your data essentially is that, you know, the, the data that you have as your receipts tied to your personal identity is normally what businesses go for when they're doing a rewards program with you. For example, like Panera want to track your purchases tied to your credit card. We wanted to let the users take control of that data because we believe it's theirs to control. It's theirs to own. Yep. The problem that we had with that when we tried to go and sell it was that we didn't have any kind of data security behind what we were doing. That was, you know, it was it was a project that we worked on over the summer and we were, you know, pretty inexperienced at that point. And when we went to sell, people were like, cool idea, but I don't trust you at all to like handle these <laughs> these transactions and any of this data. We're like, yeah, no, that makes sense. I totally get that. So we kind of went back to the drawing board and we actually started working on other stuff. We got really into the, when the Intel Curie was released, you know, it was tiny motion sensor and it's pretty crazy. It's way more than that, but it's like the size of a pencil eraser. The Arduino 101 was the first thing that actually incorporated that sensor into it. So we were kind of working with that. We developed a preliminary model for some motion tracking software, actually for action sports, what we were thinking of, you know, you could slap on the bottom of your skateboard and it was like track how you do a kickflip. And, you know, track your foot positioning, track how the board's rotating, and then you can compare that to, like, models of pros doing tricks, and it could actually teach you, oh, hey, this is what you're doing, like, move your feet a little bit, and, like, you know, flick with your front foot a little bit harder. That was where we were going there, but that didn't really get too terribly far, because, thankfully, we ran into, just, like, through a tertiary connection of Joe's, three ex-Boeing engineers who came to us, and they're like, hey, we have this crazy data encryption. It's patented. We built it, but here's the kicker. It's only binary files. <laughs> it's not anything else than that. And we've tried to go to large corporations. You know, we've tried to go to Boeing. We've tried to go to like Edward Jones. We've tried to go to banks, all different types of places. And they don't want anything to do with it because it's not, you know, we haven't really developed it. So it sounds like you guys understand what we're going for. We really like where your vision is for the stuff that you're doing. So do you guys want to work with us? And we were like, we have the perfect thing that that could go into. So we started working with these guys and really quickly built this data encryption into our CRM platform, which was at that time called Branch. And once we did that and kind of realized like, okay, we were talking about like, you know, 
giving people power with their data, you know, like empowering people to use their data in different ways. This is a little bit different now. This is like, because the encryption that we're using is a symmetric encryption that encrypts in 4096 key lengths. As opposed, uh, 256 is as like opposed to AES 256. It's literally asymptotically more efficient and more safe than AES 256. Mm -hmm. So once we started, you know, like thinking of, okay, this is really a quantum safe encryption here. What ramifications does that have for our platform? It became way bigger than just like, okay, two businesses can talk to each other over foot traffic. It was like, okay, we could do the exchange of data, period. We can exchange data between sensors. We can exchange data between people and financial transactions. We can exchange data between non-financial, non-linear transactions, such as the bartering of services and stuff. We can, you know, do... We saw this as a way to Airbnb and Uberify anything in your home, anything that you owned. Like, for example, we thought of things like additive manufacturing. We could have people with 3D printers who know how to use them, you know, sell their services over the internet, all those types of things. And basically that led us to the idea of smart contracts, which is actually right. where the whole blockchain thing comes into this is because right. we want actionable agreements. You know, right. like we want to be able to say, hey, you camera on the side of a building, like communicate this this data at this time, this video feed to, you know, the police and the insurance company that an accident happened here. We, was this at a time when Ethereum was coming out and smart contracts were becoming more, more popular in the developer Right after one of our friends just made, I think, $40,000 on Ethereum? 60. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, we were actually, when we were, the year before, when we were working at Tech Artista, we were talking to our friend, and he was, this was in 2015, and he was like, dude, Ethereum, you guys need to invest in this, like, this, you know, you guys are, like, talking about stuff that's close to this, you guys need to get in on this, like I am. So he got in, and then a year later... We figured out that he made, you know, 60 grand <laughs> off of his Ethereum investments. And I mean, that wasn't why we did that. Right. But, you know, it was just kind of really well correlated to us realizing everything about, you know, what our platform could be and, you know, how the, the means that we would need to implement to actually make that happen. And it was like, wait, this idea of smart contracts is really, really big. We don't like necessarily the cryptocurrency aspect of it, mainly because the market volatility and also the fact that you're basing the value of what you're doing on something that could have really no relation to what you're doing. And at what point did you realize that there's an opportunity with this convergence of you know connected smart devices mm -hmm. and sharing a data in a secure manner in a distributed way and how that could help change the way that energy is exchanged? So where did that conversion happen? I see. So we were thinking of this as a sort of a utilities of scale sort of application where these sort of exchanges work the same as in, you know, a smart home where you have your toaster talking to your fridge, let's say, or something. And then on the community level where you have, you know, neighbors talking to each other. And then on the enterprise slash, you know, city level where you have large centers moving massive amounts of data between each other to make large logistical processes more efficient. And we wanted to attack one or two of the most, you know, granular, most you know, in your face things in your life. And we, you know, we had thought about how to do, you know, trading communities for data and thinking about how that would work in sort of a smart city aspect. And we had given thought to energy and that's when we ran across the Ameren Accelerator on F Success. Well, so first of all, like tell us what the current landscape is in the way that we consume and 
provide energy? You know, how is energy currently being provided today? And you know, the source of energy and what are this distribution channel? And you know, what problems do you see with with the current model? So, so let's start with that. Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So currently, most people are just getting their energy straight from a, a large utility. You know, well, like so, yeah. a large utility can be. Uh, Amarin, ConEd. So Amarin, ComEd, ConEd, PG&E, Excel. These are, you know, like giant energy utility conglomerates. The people own the lines outside of your house. They have, you know, millions of customers. So okay. Amarin has 2.4 million customers in Missouri and Illinois. PG&E has, I, I don't even know how many customers PG&E. I need to look that up. But, you know, they have a whole bunch of people in California and on the West Coast and stuff. Really, so... Let's see, there's investor-owned utilities, IOUs, and co-ops, uh, publicly-owned utilities. So it's basically like, is at least in my opinion, you know, if, you're, if your utility's on the stock market, you're, you're pretty much a large utility. <laughs> the only thing that's bigger than those utilities that I just mentioned would be like regional RSOs, yeah, which would be like... ISOs. ISOs, sorry. So like MISO, they control all of the transmission and distribution for like Quebec and the entire center of the United States. You can think of it as like sort of a NASDAQ for that sort of area. For exactly. And I, energy. I think there's only like three or four of those in North America. Okay, I, so the market structure is largely controlled by massive centralized behemoths. Exactly. Yeah, what is the problem? So the main issue, issue with that is that... And located in large blocks, really. That's what I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> so they, they buy and sell in giant blocks. And the energy grid is not a one-to-one -one connection like many people think of it. It's not like, you know, your house says, hey, I need I need power to run the refrigerator. And then Amron's like, cool, we'll send you some. That's not the way that it works. All of the like coal firing plants, all of the solar panels, all the windmills, everywhere on the entire grid is just one big pool that gets energy put into it and energy removed from it. So Amron takes care of that pool by buying and selling in large blocks or, you know, any other large utility of energy. So basically when the people that they, their constituents they know, you know, generally what the poll of, you know, the Amron knows what the poll, general poll of St. Louis City is, you know, any given time of year. And they can account for that by buying and selling energy. So whenever those homes say, hey, we need energy, they're like, cool, we have it. So they just have, you know, a big pool of energy. So that's always how the grid's going to work, no matter what, because that's just how energy works. Unless you're on an isolated microgrid where there's battery storage and, you know, direct one-to-one -one lines between people, your house has no idea. Even if you you know pay for green energy credits and stuff through your utility, your house has zero idea whether or not it's getting a coal-fired electron or a solar-produced electron or a wind-produced electron. No idea. So the main problem here is that Amron's buying and selling in large blocks. When in the future, very soon in the future, you know there are going to be more people with generation on top of their home. Generation is the biggest problem for a company, for large utilities, or uh, sorry, distributed generation, because they have to figure out what to do with that. They have a legal obligation to figure out, you know, hey, there's this energy on the grid, we need it to go somewhere. And they don't always, they're not always able to figure that out because sometimes, you know, it's small blocks and they don't have the methods in place to deal with small blocks of energy. So unless that can get, you know, wrapped into some other purchase, Oftentimes it'll so line. This is a problem called stranded power, which is a huge, huge issue in the energy industry right now because just wasted energy sitting on the line, and sometimes lines will blow up because there's just a latent energy sitting there. 
Okay. So household mm-hmm. units and units are producing new sources of energy, a surplus of energy. Exactly. Okay. Especially in the middle of the day, it creates what's called a duck curve and that like you have these coal fire plants that have to be running at a certain percentage of production all the time just because of the way the, the nature of the way that they work. And since these coal fire plants are producing, you know, an expected amount of energy, you know, at noon, let's say, well, all the extra solar panels on top of people's homes are actually providing optimal energy at noon for those homes. And that's actually bringing their demand down for what the coal fire plant is producing. So there's all this extra energy that's not needed that's getting, you know, produced every day. Yeah. So that's, that's really the core issue here is that utilities just do not have a method to deal with distributed generation. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know where to, you know, how to make it go away, essentially. It's not profitable for them to broker all these agreements as well because, you know, they already have, as a utility, they already have so many jobs and so many personnel doing things. Yeah. But, but how is that bad for society and how is that bad for us consumers of energy? Or- so as of right now, what Ameren does whenever you produce energy, you know, they sell energy anywhere between 8 and, you know, 15 cents per kilowatt hour on average they will buy your energy back at like two to four cents. So you're pretty, there's almost no reason for you monetarily to invest in green energy right now other than, yeah, I care. Your own production as well, yeah. Yeah, and Amrit admits this because like it's a huge headache for them. They're losing money on all of that. They're losing money on, you know, mainly on generation and distribution on the distribution side. They lose a whole bunch of money Mm -hmm. just because like that is a pain. That's a headache for them. And it's really difficult for them to do because they don't have the methods in place. So they're giving people horrible returns on their generated energy because it's a headache for them. So, yeah, if that were to be made easier, then it would be a lot better for them. Because right now it's essentially still like, even though it's automated, it's still paper billing to, you know, everyone's account. And if people, if you wanted to do this today, technically you could set up an individual agreement through Ameren to have an energy exchange between you and your friend but if you're going to be doing different things month to month or you know you're going to be having rules basically anything nuanced past a straightforward one-to-one agreement they're going to need a new system right yep so where does blockchain fit into this and 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 where does blossom fit into this seems to me that there is a clear problem here and there are a growing number of of new energy startups mm-hmm. that are proposing various solutions. And I'm curious to, to see where Blossom fits in because it seems to me one of the trend, one of the themes is this shift towards microgrids mm-hmm. and going away from this current market structure of these huge centralized power grid model yep. mm-hmm. and going towards an alternative where it would be a shared energy and trading and selling capacity, energy capacity. And one of the projects that, that I came across with, because this is publicized is the Brooklyn Microgrid Project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for folks who don't know, it's, it's a microgrid model in Brooklyn, New York, where the house is in, a, I assume, a pilot kind of neighborhood where they can sell and buy uh, energy capacity. For example, a neighbor who may have a solar panel producing power, they, they can sell that on an open exchange. And there are other startups like Grid Plus that's making more you know greener energy and making it cheaper. So I'm um, kind of curious, you know, where does Blossom 
that's in, into this picture. Yeah, definitely. So all, well, you mentioned L3 and Grid Plus, both of them have, you know, they're doing really involved solutions. They're literally building microgrids. They also have a lot of hardware to go along with that because they actually manage the distribution, the transmission, everything. They're incredible. They're doing awesome stuff. However, we, I mean, we just don't think that that's necessary. It's so much overhead. It's so much involvement in doing even one project. It takes years. We are a lightweight software. We have no hardware attached to us. And we're integrating with utilities because as we found, the utilities actually just kind of want to move away from the distribution side. As I you know, said to you earlier, it's a headache for them and move into basically just an ISP role is, hey, we have the lines here. There is no reason for you to go build new lines. So you know, let us just be there as the owners of the lines and then we'll let you do whatever you want over them. Mm-hmm. So we're an easy way, lightweight way to sit on top of everything that's already there, not invade anything, not even really change what's already going on, but still allow people this freedom to buy and sell energy from whoever and wherever they want without many limitations. And also, you know, we have the same, the same goals as those guys really. We want to give, you know, people cheaper energy, better options for energy. We want to proliferate green energy mm-hmm. options and distributed generation assets and also provide, you know, more value, more return on investment for the people that do choose to get into that. Mm-hmm. So with, with that business model, explain to us, like, how, how did you get involved with the Amron Accelerator? As we mentioned uh, Amron is, is a very large traditional utility company here in the Midwest, and they created a, a startup accelerator, um, mm-hmm. this energy sector-focused accelerator, and you guys were part of the, of the first cohorts, mm-hmm. I believe, right? Yep. So well, help people understand, like people may not be familiar with the startup scene, you know, what, mm-hmm. what is this, you know, what is a startup accelerator? and you know, what, what What do you get from them? Do you get access to membership, you know, startup mm-hmm. capital? And so what, what is their relationship there? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So accelerators are awesome. There's a lot of varying sizes of them, but basically the whole point of them is to take an early stage company like ours and move it along quickly because, you know, you got a pretty good idea. That's the entire idea behind it. And they give you, there's programming to go along with that uh, from, you know, the company that's going to run the accelerator including like pitch practice, you know, goal setting and stuff, you know, just kind of general working uh, with industry professionals, day-to-day stuff. Startup. Yeah. You get uh, subject, you know, meetings, with a whole bunch of subject matter experts and industry professionals. In this case, we got to work directly with Ameren to, you know, build an energy solution or, you know, like take our company, you know, through that route, which is really great. And with accountants. Yeah. Uh, usually, lawyers, usually they do, they do involve, you know, some investment, which ours did, which was awesome. And at the end, you know, it usually culminates in a demo day where, you know, you take everything that you did through the accelerator and then, you know, you pitch your company to a bunch of investors, potential investors, industry professionals, you know, big fish, ideally. Yeah, yeah for, about 12, <laughs> for about 12 weeks ideally. from like yeah. nine to three, you're in meetings yeah. and conferences, yeah. talking to different people, making different plans. And from three to whenever you fall asleep before the next day, you're making all of those changes, trying to run the rest of your business after you've been at the accelerator all day, you know, really yeah. figuring out how to improve it and the changes you need to make and what you need to get started and goals you need to set and all that sort of good stuff. How does it feel to be college grads and then meeting these career big wigs? That <laughs> was pretty insane. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was super crazy, especially 
Getting into the accelerator was almost that was that was like yeah, it was a little gobsmacking. Yeah, the the entire thing was was crazy for us, especially like you know we went to the initial like happy hour and everyone was just like you know we're 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 drinking and stuff with everyone. Everyone just giving a shit. Are you old enough so to drink? Bad. Like, oh, are you guys old enough to drink? We had probably like fifteen people come up to us like, oh, you guys aren't old enough to drink, are you? And it's like. <laughs> Dude, I'm sorry y'all are like 55, 60, my bad. <laughs> yeah, we never really shaved our faces before we went to the accelerator after that. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, no, it, it was all in good fun. Everyone yeah. there was super cool. And I think that was the craziest part was to, you know, see how supportive and cool everyone was throughout the, mm-hmm. throughout the program. Why would a big traditional incumbent like Amron be interested in this technology? I mean, are they considered to adopt this technology soon? I mean, some would consider them sort of you're you're competing with you know the, the current market structures. Are they considered you know frenemies and collaborators? <laughs> uh, I'd say they're definitely friends. They're the way the grid is working right now is that it, advanced metering infrastructure, for example, is something that needs to be implemented for smart grids to happen. And AMIs, which is the advanced metering thing I just talked about, are not fully deployed in almost any utility. Yeah. So a lot of utilities, especially running pilots right now, doing all the research and good faith that they can to when you know their projects that are usually like, you know, 10, 20, sometimes even 40 year projects roll over that get their infrastructure in place to where that they can support, let's say like, you know, using Blossom on, you know, a grand scale, that's sort of when they're gonna fully engage. However, the what the good part is now is that they are working very closely with us and almost like comedically know, you know, how slow and traditional that they are <laughs> and, you know, work with us to, you know, make sure that we have everything that we need to work within the industry and yeah, just continue to support and push us and just sort of tell us, you know, here's what you guys need to do to, you know, get to where you need to be to work with utilities as the climate moves forward. Yeah. And I don't think I heard this anywhere, but the reason why they're working with us specifically is because, like I said earlier, they want to move away from the distribution side and they just want to be transmission and distribution. They just want to own the lines and we fit very well into helping them move into that role because they really, their entire goal is to not, not fade away. You know, that they want to become big oil. They don't, they, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, like they, they understand the market, you know, they understand what needs to happen and they, you know, They've actually quit generating in Illinois. They only buy to. and sell, you know, from third party third party generators, and they they are just the lines. So they they pretty much reach their model in Illinois, but Missouri is still regulated. So, like I said, yeah, yeah. in this state, they have a legal obligation. Them and KCPNL in Kansas City, Kansas City Power and Light. They yeah they they have a legal obligation, and really, it, it, there's a lot of regulatory hurdles for anyone else to get in, and you know tap into the lines and that's where you get community solar projects and other, you know, installers, which those are starting to get really big around the country. So what was the most challenging or rewarding aspects of working with, with a large player like that? So most rewarding is that whenever stuff needs to get done, like they can make it happen, you know, like if there are walls that need to be moved, like they'll move them for you if if they need to be. Right. The problem is, is that getting them to do that takes so long and they, so much incentive. <laughs> and they will tell you this to your face and they will, you know, like if I said this in front of, 
in front of anyone that we work with there, they would sit here and be like, yeah, no, that, yeah, sorry guys. <laughs> they, they, they've done that plenty of times because they are huge. Yeah. They're a giant, right. like whenever you talk to one person and you know, no one's ever sure of anything because like they gotta, they gotta check <laughs> they with gotta other people, them. you know, the next guy, yeah. they, they, mm-hmm. they, they gotta check with the other people that they work with and it, it totally makes sense. Totally understand it. Does not make it any less frustrating. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's been super rewarding in that, like, you know, especially now that we've finished our pilot with Amarin, yeah. that we that we can say we've done that. And once we're able to release our white paper, that's a huge, you know, feather in our hat for, you know, legitimacy, like being able to work with, be, or just being able to step into another room with, uh, you know, another utility or something and be able to confidently say like, hey, we've done this with someone else before. Here are the results and here's what, why it's going to benefit you. Yep. Right. I don't see a lot of other energy startups in, in this market that's working with a, a traditional player like like Blossom. So it's quite interesting with the collaboration that, that you had from the beginning. So appreciate but, it. But but since graduating from this energy accelerator, you know, what is your roadmap now? What, yeah. what's your focus and you know what what, are, what is the biggest hurdle for you to, to get to the next step yeah so we've started working with like i said or i mentioned earlier you know community solar projects and green energy or energy utilities installers we're working with a company right now called go solar and basically well, what we're finding out is these types of people you know like aside from amarin who also still basically has paper billing any utility out any smaller utility is literally doing paper billing between like the bank and their customers so right off the bat, we can provide a nice payment portal for them, which they're super interested in. Also, any of those installations that we're working with that are generating more than they're consuming, we can help them offload that to other places. So that's where we're starting right now. And I think that Ameren is really interested in, well, they, they have expressed their interest in the, in the project, really supportive of it and want us to keep going. And I think that they kind of want to see what exactly happens with that. And then I would bet money if I had it to <laughs> that, you know, if we come back to them after some success with those guys, we can probably start talking about something a little bit bigger with them. Mm-hmm. And past uh, just trading energy as well, we've know we've just talked to, we've talked about data as something that Blossom's able to trade as well. We've already talked to uh, Lead about the potential of using this data that we're already collecting to, you know, validate lead certifications for certain buildings. So right now the same sort of scenarios with the way that you, you know, paper trail your energy with, you know, your companies, you have to do that with leaders. You have to go out and read your meter or like, you know, have something set up yourself to, you know, read your meter and then put it in an Excel sheet and send it off. You know, there's a huge possibility and value there for us to also just take that data that we're already gathering for the utility and the customer and siphon off just the bit that we need for lead and send it off to them automatically. Hmm. So... What would be a feasible time frame for you know how this technology can prove itself that the, there be tangible impact and you can be able to measure that and that makes a, a difference for for customers because you know we want to be able to abstract away from the hype and mm-hmm. so what would you say would be a reasonable time frame like for you to measurable headway towards you know your goal to be able to to push this to to production, I would say to show measurable results yeah. in the way that I would like to, six to nine months because I want to have at least you know three to six months of data to say that there has been measurable results. But with that said, we are planning on doing so, you know launching with Ghost Solar at an installation. These we have a location that 
we want to use this on. Basically, we just need to find some people to buy this energy from this location. And yeah, we're... we're corporations, we're, if we're you're in. out there, come buy our energy. Yeah, corporations, <laughs> if you're trying to... <laughs> Trying to get in on some green energy, we got you. So, so how would um, you do that? Like, how how would that that purchase work? How would that agreement work? So, it's actually a virtual power purchase agreement. Okay. So, what PPA or power purchase agreement is how a company like Go Solar and Amarin actually, you know, even big utilities do large power purchase agreements. It, but it's basically just saying, hey, I'm I'm going to buy energy from this place, and this is the rate that it's going to be at, and it usually locks you in. I mean, do the static or linear rate? <clears throat> so. Well, it locks you in for a period of, you know, like 10 to 15 years, but you're getting a rate that is going to be proven to be, you know, like 15 to 20% less than whatever you're paying right then. Because especially with the, with the company that we're working with, they have, they're bringing some technology over from Germany that they're an international company and they have a whole bunch of crazy standards and stuff that they're like, yeah, no, we can absolutely save you 20% of your energy bill. No problem. Usually on large installations, but yeah, that's all that a power purchase agreement is. It's just saying, hey, I'm going to buy energy from this place at this price for this duration of time. So yeah, what would happen there is and then they would sign the power purchase agreement. We would you know, get it all set up in Blossom, especially if this is the first pilot, we'd work directly with them and we would get it all set up in the system, make sure you know everyone knows how everything works. And then after everything's signed, you know, after a month, construction starts. And I think a couple weeks after that, they're getting power. Hmm. Yep. So in six, nine months, a follow up with you guys and mm-hmm. see if there are going to be some big power purchases, right? Of course. That's, right. yeah, that's the goal. What about St. Louis kind of appeals you guys to, you know, do your, your business startups here? You know, what is it about St. Louis that you can't get elsewhere? So you can't get us elsewhere because we're from St. Louis. <laughs> both of us. Yeah, St. Louis roots. Yep. Both so, of, yeah, both of us born and raised yeah, here. It's unlike Jack Dorsey, who has St. Louis roots and then departed to Silicon Valley. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. No one's called us Hollywood yet, but they're going to. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> so we've gotten, you know, everything that we that we've gotten so far from St. Louis. The things that you can get here that you can't get anywhere else, cheap rent. The industry is pretty accessible here. The, yeah, the, the the big players here are very accessible. You know, like it's not like you have to go through miles and miles right. of people to, right. you know, talk to Brian Dixon. And then you wouldn't trade that off for, you know, being in Silicon Valley. Or- no, it's, one, it's 100% saturated there. If we would have even mentioned, like, yeah. we're doing energy and blockchain together and they're going to say, okay, like, why and who the hell are you and all this other sort of stuff and not even get to the selling point for us. Yeah, no, the, I mean, it was definitely way better for us to grow here because A, we didn't or we didn't let our heads get too big because, you know, there's not a whole lot to, you know, compare yourself to. So it's like, we're, you know, we're moving along. We're doing pretty well. You know, we're keeping our, keeping our heads above water. So that's, we're going to, you know, try to keep our mental. Mm-hmm. So that was really good. In terms of getting visibility, that was awesome because, you know, we came into the Amaran Accelerator with almost nothing. We just had, we had like a command prompt prototype running that Joe had to like explain over the phone, like, all right, so this looks like just bullshit is, you know, scrolling through code in the command prompt. Yeah, like when you I see on the TV you when you think someone's what, hacking. <laughs> I promise it's doing what you say or what we say that it's doing. You know, thankfully. You showed them a smart agreement like really quick. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, thankfully, you know, that was enough to, to get in the accelerator and that was, you know, really what kicked everything off for us for sure. So that kind of being able to to do that, I don't think we would have been able to do that in Silicon Valley. Not at all because, you know, there's 150 other 
other startups that are going to be more put together with, you know, well put together, a, meaning like with UI and stuff, they could have had like scaffolding that, and all sort of fake data put in there. Yeah, that's something that worked. That's, that, that's the biggest thing. You know, a lot of stuff that we learned as well is like, all right. Yeah. Just because our, you know, prototype was not visually appealing, like doesn't mean that it wasn't any better than like some ghost code that someone just wraps some UI containers around. It doesn't actually exist. And just because it's the Midwest, I don't know, it might be just because we're here. It just sort of felt like, you know, you can be more honest, like with other businesses and be more straightforward and not sort of have to like, you know, do the sales game or like dance around the bush a lot. And as well yeah. as that, like, because St. Louis like is cheap in a way, it also like forces you to be lean and be very conscientious about the money that you spend. Because especially, you know, if you're going to get invested in St. Louis, you're not going to get as much as you would if you would go to Silicon Valley. However, in Silicon Valley, you're in really nice offices that cost a lot of money. You're using like Uber every day. You're eating out postmating, yep. like doing all this sort of stuff. And also like probably having to, you know, do stuff you see on Silicon Valley to try to like, you know, make like the five people you just hired that you really didn't interview that well, you know, happy. Yeah. And make them do their job and stuff. There's a whole bunch that comes with being in Silicon Valley, basically. Right. Is, is is what we've figured out anyway. Right. And all of that's not to say that, you know, we don't want to be in a different location at some point just because maybe even Silicon the Valley. biggest <laughs> Right. May, maybe maybe not ruling it out, but the biggest issue that we found around here is like, you know, although the industry is accessible, the numbers are not there. You know, like in, especially in tech. There's this is very old money. It's it's really old money and I would say staggering it's like 70 to 80 percent of the people that i talk to tell me the exact same phrase i know nothing about technology so you're gonna have to go slow like or here's my guy and he's gonna yeah, he's like, gonna recommend something yeah to here me. Like, like i don't know anything that you're talking about let me give you off to this dude who i think knows what he's talking about right. and we at some point you know we're gonna we're gonna need to kind of branch out from that and right. get get into a place where you know there are it is more saturated because you know that's kind of where everything is right now but you know that's like we're point. yeah like yeah, we need to grow yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. like that's nothing not you know nothing bad on st louis is kind of the reality right. of the situation right. you go where you can make the biggest impact right yeah you have good reasons to be in st louis now there are not so good reasons to be in silicon valley <laughs> exactly but, uh, yeah it seems like you're really contributing to the the tech ecosystem here and so wish you both best of luck so we've been speaking with Joe Garner and Chris Mertens with Blossom, an energy startup based here in St. Louis. So best of luck, both of you. Thank you very much. Well, it was great to be here. Great talking with you. Thank you for listening to a Bit Cryptic podcast. A Bit Cryptic podcast is hosted by Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Show notes are by our editor in chief, Dang Du. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember. Nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening. And remember, keep it cryptic.